Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the second episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, I just want to spend some time, at least at the beginning here, thanking you guys for a successful launch to the show. I got a ton of positive feedback. It seemed like you guys really appreciate the format and the information that was on tap. Didn't get too many hate comments, which is always good, but, you know, I know when once you dive into the politics, and especially some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today, you're, you're going to get some of it, but it is what it is, and obviously I'm more than prepared for that kind of stuff. But either way, I've listened to what a lot of you guys said, done a little bit of smoothing up some of the rougher edges of the show, and hopefully, as things go, things will just get better and better and continue to improve. So feel free to keep leaving comments, questions, criticisms, or feedback, whether it's positive or negative. I'm more than happy to hear it down there. As you guys know, I'm a pretty reasonable guy. I don't really come out swinging in the comments section. So with that introduction out of the way, let us begin our next episode of Chatter in the Skull by bringing to you the main topic of today. Not a whole lot of current events and politics happening right now. There have been some things, but it's been a fairly slow news week. So I want to take this episode more to focus on some more of my personal beliefs and talk about something that a lot of people are talking about, much to my chagrin, which unfortunately I feel like forces me to talk about it in some capacity on here. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about everybody's favorite subject, except mine apparently, which is, of course, the culture war. In case you guys are wondering why everybody looks so weird in this picture, it's a AI prompt generated picture. I just put in culture war to see if I could get a funny picture and I did. So before I begin here, let me lay out my own position on the culture war, which is I freaking hate talking about the culture war. To me, it's kind of like the political equivalent of, you know, gossip or high school drama type of thing. It kind of impacts some people's lives a little bit, but not really in a very meaningful way. But everybody loves to talk about it because it causes a shitload of drama. And honestly speaking, this kind of stuff happening back in 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, it was kind of like just the big crap that was going on. Wasn't a lot of real importance going on in the world for people to talk about. Then 2020 hits, we have the pandemic. Then 2022 hits, we have the war in Ukraine. And now the culture war is the absolute bottom of the barrel in terms of what we should be spending our time talking about in terms of political discourse. There are now incredibly real and incredibly impactful things happening on the planet. And this kind of clusterfuck that we are enduring is going to get worse before it gets better. We're very likely to see things like food prices increase, gas prices increase, the flow of energy disrupted and completely shut off in certain places, not to mention the slowly creeping up demographic time bomb most of the world is sitting on right now. And shit has the possibility to get very real very quickly. And instead, you're going to waste your time on your political platform yammering on about the color of the Little Mermaid, the color of elves, and all this stupid nonsense that really doesn't impact anybody's lives. Like, seriously, guys, get a fucking grip. Get a fucking grip. I feel that this upcoming 2020s is going to be the most impactful and change-filled decade of our lifetimes, and we better get ready for it because we have the opportunity to really break this bitch and actually replace it with something that's significantly better than what we have now. But instead, these culture warriors will want to sit on their platforms and snivel. They put a black elf in Lord of the Rings. Oh my god, they're regulating. Oh, they're vandalizing Tolkien's work. Holy crap. Oh. I, maybe I could be wrong. You know, I haven't met the guy. I haven't talked to him personally. But I don't think Tolkien would give a flying fuck what color the elves were in someone else's interpretation of his work. I know I don't give a flying fuck. I mean, yeah, I guess I'm not Tolkien, but... You can make the elves orange, purple, tangerine. I don't give a shit. It's certainly not going to affect my enjoyment of the work in any way, shape, or form. And unless you're one of these people who are really into the culture war and are really in tune with all these stupid little things, everyone else is not going to give a shit at all. 
I will say though that having a kid has brought me a little bit more in tune with this kind of stuff because I sincerely hope that when she gets old enough to kind of really comprehend this crap, it will have died off because I don't want her growing up in a world with all these weirdos losing their minds about the race or sexuality or gender of some fictional character in a TV show that the vast majority of people don't care about. Which brings me right up to The Little Mermaid. That's right. You knew we were going to have to talk about this. You knew that in a Culture War episode, we'd have to talk about The Little Mermaid remake. And here we are. You can finally hear my opinions on this nonsense. Well, let me start by talking about Disney itself and what I think about this corporation in general. Personally, I think Disney is probably the most awful corporation in existence. I don't think there exists a corporation where a greater juxtaposition exists between their actual business practices and the kind of messaging and material that they put out for the public to consume. This household has a very strong anti-giving Disney money policy, and thankfully this is a policy my wife shares with me as well as another vehement anti-Disney person. But remember, that's not anti-showing our kids Disney stuff. It's anti-paying for Disney stuff. So any sort of children's movies from that particular corporation are acquired through alternate methods. You know, if Disney thought that turning Ariel from a character with lighter skin or to darker skin would actually make me go and buy this movie, well, they are sorely mistaken. Yay, everybody, we got Max here. He's barking up a storm, so I had to bring him in here to shut him up, so hopefully he won't cause too much trouble. In any case, as I was saying, the whole point I was trying to make is this is obviously a marketing tactic for Disney to try and appeal to the darkening demographics of North America and Europe. And as a marketing tactic, it may have backfired because I'll bet you anything that if they had come out and made Ariel like, you know, white as the driven snow, so white that her skin reflects sunlight back at it, these anti-woke types would be praising it, praising it to the skies. And they couldn't wait to throw their money at it because for them, they'll spend their money on just about anything. So long as it's anti-woke or combats the woke left in some sort of conceivable way. But let's be real here. Unless you have kids, the likelihood of you actually seeing this movie or, of course, are, are a kid. And if you are a kid in the 10 below range of watching this video, you should probably stop because it's not meant for you. In any case, unless you actually have a kid that would go and see this movie you're probably not going to go and see it yourself. You know, I don't think old Timmy Poole is going to go see this movie on his own. But here's the real thing, right? As someone who has a kid who is probably going to end up seeing this movie at some point in her lifetime, this version of Ariel looks a lot closer to her than the previous version of Ariel. And when I said this on the Discord, somebody roasted me. He's like, well... I hope so, because the last one was an animated movie, and this is a real-life movie. And yes, granted, there is that. But what I really mean here is that Halle Berry looks a lot closer to my half-white, half-Indian child than if they were to get some non-person of color to fill this role. And here's the question I want to ask the anti-woke types, which is, why doesn't my little kid get the opportunity to have a movie character which she can more easily identify with I got that opportunity when I was a kid. I'm assuming a lot of you guys got that opportunity when you were kids. Why the heck shouldn't she? You know, they make this about some sort of political issue rather than what it is, which is the economic number crunching of a soulless, heartless corporation. And this brings me to our second generic conservative argument. Last episode, we introduced you to the West. And I do want to spend a little bit of time talking a bit more about that and what arguments fall under the West. But today, I'm going to introduce you to not one, but two generic conservative arguments. And this one that I'm about to introduce you to is one that I'm sure you have heard a million times before. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's wokeness bad. 
Here we can see the AI art generation for the prompt Wokeness Bad. And I think this is, I just love the sign he's got here. One V's bad wank. Here's another one, another AI prompt for Wokeness Bad. And the caption says, Wafoolies, Wizardy, which I'm pretty sure is the noise that a lot of these guys made when they saw the new trailer for The Little Mermaid. I mean, we could go into the whole Lord of the Rings wokeness thing. Unfortunately, I really don't give a crap about that. I haven't seen the series. I don't care about the Second Age. I'm generally speaking not the biggest Tolkien fan to begin with. But that being said, the color of the elves is hardly going to impact my viewing experience. Color of the dwarves, though, that that's the bridge too far. That's the bridge too far for me. No, they gotta be white. Dwarves gotta be white. Obviously, I'm joking there. I don't give a flying fuck. The one thing I do like about this whole Little Mermaid snafu is that it's really kind of gotten the anti-woke types to take the mask completely off, which is that they believe putting any women or minorities or LGBT folks into media representation is in and of itself a political act and worthy of a political response. Which basically means that anytime any woman of color minority is put into a role, these people are going to play it off as some kind of great political act and essentially dehumanize these people down to political pawns. Which to me is, again, so hilarious if it weren't so sad. And so many of these things right now are, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry type of mode with a lot of this stuff. So... Forgive me if it seems like maybe I'm not taking it seriously. I know it is serious. But one of the important things I've noticed in my lifetime with arguing and debating conservatives is that part of what drives them crazy is not taking their position seriously. Because when you don't, what they usually will end up doing is having to escalate and bring up something more egregious until you take it seriously. And if you still refuse to take whatever they're talking about seriously once they've unloaded their most egregious examples on you at that point they are now free to dismiss you as some kind of amoral monster or whatever they want to say in their heads and then they don't have to take you seriously anymore so that's the kind of game they play and we're going to delve a little bit deeper into that once we get to the third generic conservative argument that they like to make later in the show but before i do that i want to talk about where this idea of anti-wokeness comes from and kind of what is driving this sentiment by and large. So where does this anti-woke kind of stuff come from? Well, it comes from a feeling that no longer does the archetype that the conservatives like to push forward, sort of the stereotypical Protestant traditional working family, blah, 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 what these people want and how they influence sort of the great marketplace of ideas is beginning to diminish as people move away from family lifestyles, people turn to more individual lifestyles, or of course you have people of different cultures and demographics moving into the country and enjoying and buying and appreciating different types of media. Before that point, the sort of hegemonic cultural control that is the so-called traditional lifestyle couldn't be really challenged in an economic sense because this was what the demographics were of the 1980s, 1990s, and then moving into the 2000s, we started to really see the shift in demographics. And now, of course, in the 2010s, you actually have these minorities, these people who live other lifestyles, people who might be single, might not want kids, might have, like me, mixed-race families. All of a sudden, these people are now entering the market space and they don't want and they're not interested in that so-called traditional lifestyle or what was usually sold alongside of that traditional lifestyle. So as a result of these changing demographics, corporations started to produce different types of media and products that would cater to them. And the people who have really felt like their lifestyle was the only one represented in American and, let's be real, most West, Western societies is just no longer front and center for these corporate conglomerates. So they're going where the money is, which is no longer with the so-called traditional conservative family unit. 
It's not some great conspiracy by dirty socialists like myself. And it's not necessarily political in any real way, shape, or form. It's an economic move driven by the changing demographics and attitudes of our societies. And here's the thing that I want, I do want to say to conservatives, and I think people on the left should just say this maybe every so often, which is we don't want to destroy the traditional lifestyle. Heck, I myself live a quote-unquote traditional lifestyle, but the thing is there are other lifestyles and ways of living your life out there, and they are just as valid as the so-called traditional one. And at the core of it, all that left-leaning people want is for that to be respected so that people who are outside the traditional norm, quote-unquote, which I don't like saying because, as most socialists generally believe, the traditional norm is what's dictated by society and cultural pressures. But to keep it simple, I'll just use that phrase. At the end of the day, all we're saying is that these people who don't live so-called traditional lifestyles deserve the exact same respect, dignity, and rights as everybody else. And that's what most of wokeness is, is showing people who live different lifestyles, showing that they exist, and quite frankly, their lifestyle is just as valid as anybody else's. Sorry, Benny boy, gay people exist, transgender people exist, and trying to hide your kids from the fact that they exist in the world is just something so dangerous and so detrimental to their development that I don't understand how anyone can think that they're actually doing their kids a valuable service. For someone who supposedly cares about his kids and wants to give his kids the best that he can, it doesn't seem like Benny Boy really actually wants to do that. What it seems like he's far more interested in doing is jamming his own political perspective down their throats. Because I think that he, as a parent and as a father, hasn't come to understand something very fundamentally important that all parents will come to understand eventually in their lifetimes and hopefully sooner rather than later, which is that your child's life is not your own life. You are merely the guide on your child's journey through life. Which direction they ultimately decide to go is up to them, because at the end of the day, they are separate people from you who have their own free will, wants, interests, hobbies, and goals in life. I genuinely think that he believes his goal with his kids is to basically make sure that they propagate conservative values to the next generation. And to illustrate my point, all you need to do is imagine what if one of Benny Boy's kids ended up being gay or transsexual or another member of the LGBT plus community. He would lose his mind. He would do everything in his power to try and quash that and destroy that and obliterate their identity in every conceivable way. And again, it's hilarious because this is always the thing that they will accuse the left of doing, that they want to take their kids and brainwash them and blah, 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 blah. Yet it's exactly what they do. It's textbook, literally, action for action, exactly the same crap. Like they have this crazy idea that left-wing people want to jam LGBT ideology, quote-unquote, into their heads and turn them gay. Total nonsense, right? Absolute, total crazy nonsense. Nobody wants to do this. I don't want to do this with my kid. Whatever path she wants, I'm not going to force her down it. And with that, that will bring us just about to the second part of this episode and the third overall generic conservative argument that I'm going to tell you guys about, which is, won't somebody please think of the children? But before we move on, I just want to show you the source for the background footage I was playing there for a little bit. This is Florida's anti-woke censorship. This comes from Journeyman Pictures, in case you were interested what that documentary was and wanted to check it out for yourself. So let's talk about argument number three. Won't somebody please think about the children? Because this is one that has been gaining traction a lot recently. I would say that still, wokeness bad is probably their most number one deployed argument, where after that, 
the last is number two, but won't somebody please think of the children is nipping hotly at its heels. And of course, we have one person to really blame for this entire backwards state of affairs that we currently find ourselves in. Well, that's not fair. It is a group of people, but there is definitely one person who has become sort of the defining face of this movement and this argument. You guys already probably know who exactly I'm talking about. It's this little perverted shit right here, Matt Walsh. So I don't necessarily want to do a big, long, extended breakdown on this guy because he's getting his ass currently handed to him online for his creepy and perverted comments which he made, which have been resurfaced by Media Matters. He made this, uh, this hilarious, of course, uh, you know, again, when I say hilarious, I mean hilarious if it wasn't so dangerous for a lot of people. But he made this hilarious statement on his YouTube channel where he's like, kiss my ass, I'm not giving any ground. And right, this is supposed to be his like tough guy shtick or whatever. But the big thing is, in his big spiel, he didn't, of course, walk back, apologize, or even try and reframe any of the points that he made in the leaked audio, which stands to reason that he believes all the same crap. The most egregious one that people are talking about is basically he said that the problem with teenagers getting pregnant isn't the fact that they're pregnant, it's the fact that they're not getting married, which is a very eyebrow-raising statement, to say the least. And of course, he came out and did this big, long video on his YouTube channel where he's like, kiss my ass. He basically says, yeah, this is still what I believe. And that's it. End of story. Which, great, stand by your comments because it just means that you're the perverted, skeezy piece of garbage that we always thought you were. We talk a lot about in leftist circles how a lot of the stuff that these conservative commentators just say are self-reports, or we should just take them as self-reports. I think there's no question that the guy who spends pretty much all his waking hours talking about the genitals of transgender people might be a little bit perverted. I'll be real with you guys. Matt Walsh is a person who I have genuine disdain for, who I genuinely don't like. And I don't say that about conservatives usually on an individual level and not even most of like these big conservative commentators but this man is just so ridiculously over the top and generally insane with the kind of crap that he says i really struggle to understand why anybody takes him seriously in any way shape or form and not only that why conservatives as a whole would decide to go with this guy as their new front man and the kind of crap that he says, because it's not just bigoted, harmful, hurtful, and dangerous. It's also stupid and easily disproven. So let me tell you when I first heard about this guy, because he was kind of one of those Daily Wire D-listers that kind of toiled in obscurity. And I didn't hear anything about him until he kind of went semi-viral for making this claim that arranged marriages and arranged relationships are objectively, and I remember the word he used very clearly, they are objectively better than the system we have now. So as many of you may know, my wife was born in India, grew up in America, but spent the first while of her life in India and was an Indian citizen. India, of course, being the area of the world predominantly known for celebrating arranged marriages, if this guy ever spent any time talking to an Indian woman, let's be real, this guy doesn't think that women have anything interesting or valuable to say in any way, shape, or form, but let's say he actually went out of his bubble and, and went and talked to an Indian woman and took them seriously. They would lay into him so hard about the damage and destruction that arranged marriages have had in that culture and on the psyche of the people who have to endure them. And the people who have to endure the shit end of the stick are almost always the women. And I'm going to spit you guys some facts. These are some facts about Indian culture and specifically about arranged marriages. One of the things about Indian culture that we here in the West don't understand because it's pretty alien to our frame of reference 
and Indian people don't do a very good job in kind of reaching out and translating their culture for other people to understand and experience. So for most of us Goras, it's a pretty big mystery. But I have had the unique opportunity to marry into that culture and experience a lot of what it's like. So let me tell you what the arranged marriage usually looks like. The one thing people need to understand about Indian culture is that what you do and how you interact with other people and how you live your life, everything needs to be done for the benefit of the clan. Indian families are far more expansive than Western families. You're usually talking about a family that has multiple generations of people in it. You know, you're basically like a, a corporate structure almost rather than a family structure. And usually the head of that corporate structure is the old patriarch or matriarch of the family with various other important influential family members kind of jockeying for influence underneath them for the inevitable time when the people at the top eventually die and then new leadership moves into that position. So within this structure, women are basically treated as pawns that family members use to gain influence within the clan and sometimes outside of the clan. So what these arranged marriages are actually decided on are not as Mr. Walsh says in his clip, which is sort of the perceived compatibility of the two partners, but rather the perceived benefit that the parents will get from this partnership. So the fact of the matter is a lot of the times the parents don't have their child's best interests at heart. They have, like I said, that clan, that family structures, best interests at heart. And then of course there comes to the very, very awkward fact, although I'm sure Matt Walsh would be okay with this because at least they're married, right? At least they're married which is that very frequently older men and older by decades are getting married into arranged marriages with younger women. It's very common for women who are 20 years old to be paired off with men who are 35, even 40 years old. Of course, that doesn't happen all the time. There are times when couples who are a lot closer to each other's age are paired up. That being said, these kind of really gross arranged marriages are quite common. And another thing you have to bear in mind is that in Indian culture, it is traditional in the sense that the women do not have a lot of say about what happens in their relationship. Divorce is frowned upon. And if there's abuse, what will happen is that an Indian woman brings forward abuse to maybe one of you know her sisters or her parents but rather than helping her out, the clan will kind of lockstep behind the abuser and defend them from the accusations because those accusations look bad on the family as a whole. At least this is how they see it. So it's a very dark and dangerous situation in a lot of these arranged marriages. But hey, apparently it's objectively better. Another thing I've seen people bring up in defense of arranged marriages is this kind of graph where that over time sort of chosen marriages go down in satisfaction while, you know, arranged marriages go, excuse me, <laughs> go up in satisfaction, right? But usually this kind of crossover, it doesn't happen until like 30 years into the marriage, right? And you know what's happening there. It's essentially Stockholm Syndrome. It's essentially at this point, They've been together so long that they just accepted their fate. That being said, though, I just wanted to address that coming from a place of personal experience and hoping that there aren't people out there who actually think that the notion of arranged marriages is at least sane and reasonable people out there think that the notion of arranged marriages is somehow good or beneficial or should be strived to be implemented in our society in any way, shape or form. What I really wanted to talk about is how the argument, won't somebody please think of the children, is being used against transgendered people. The great thing, though, is that this argument has been used before by conservatives, and it sucked the big one then, and it sucks the big one now. Some of you guys may not be old enough to remember, but I am. I can't believe that I am the guy who is the old guy these days, but I'm old enough to remember when the please think about the children argument was against gay people and this idea that they're trying to come and they're trying to turn your kids gay. 
right? Now, now the narrative is, oh, they're trying to turn your kids trans. You know, I managed to make it through. I managed to make it through there, buddy, and uh, not become gay. But here, it's here's a great King of the Hill clip that basically exemplifies this. Of course, most people's dad. It's like that book they took out of the school library. I've got two dads. No, you don't. Oh, man. Yep. Back in the good old late 90s. That's what they worried about. The book, I Got Two Dads. So let's spend some time talking about transgendered issues. In fact, I think this might be the first time ever I've talked about transgendered issues on this channel. And let me be forthright with you guys, which is that I am not the foremost expert on this issue. I've only really begun to study it in depth. And I have learned a ton in this process. And hopefully I can share some of that with you. But I want to say that there are a lot of people who know so much more about this and can articulate it far better. Ultimately, though, I hope that I can be respectful and understanding. And one of the main messages I really want to get across here is I hope people understand that for transgender people, their gender identity is not just some novelty. This is a core part of who they are and defining who they are as a person. And it's something that I personally don't have any frame of reference for. But at the very least, I can try and be empathetic. So as I alluded to earlier, transgendered issues and gender identity is not something I usually spent a lot of time thinking about or contemplating or studying. And that is because when it came to gender identity and gender expression, it was something that I feel and of course still feel is very firmly in the camp of freedom of choice. Ultimately, unless I'm some kind of perverted weirdo like Ben Shapiro, what people decide to identify as and what their gender is, is absolutely no business of mine. And I have even less business telling them how they should think or how they should feel or what's happening inside their own minds. And this is something that has always really baffled me, which is why do conservatives seem to hate transgendered people so much? The existence of transgendered people fits very easily into their ideological framework. Again, you just take the freedom of choice angle. An individual's choice in their life doesn't impact mine, so therefore I have no real reason to decide how they live. However, this does not seem to be the way that most conservatives view the issue. In fact, they violate their own ideological precepts to get to their anti-trans position. And quite frankly, the only reason I can think for someone to do that is because you don't like transgender people. You think they're weird, they scare you, and you think that they shouldn't exist. And we're all here to say, sorry, that's not the case. They very much do exist. They've existed for all of human history, and the evidence is overwhelming. And the way they, of course, justify this anti-trans hatred is not on their ideological precepts. It's about... Won't somebody please think of the children? But the ultimate issue here is that they don't care about the children. If I saw this guy anywhere near my child, I would call the police immediately. What it's about is giving cover to parents who are anti-trans and anti-LGBT and basically letting them justify their own bigotry against their child. Why do I say that? Well, when you talk to people who are advocates of, say, like the Don't Say Gay Bell in Florida or a lot of these anti-trans bills which block gender-affirming care to youths and minors, or not telling parents that their kids are questioning their gender at school, or telling them that they've joined a gay-straight alliance club. The reason why all of those exist is to stop parents who don't agree with the child's identity, they don't agree with what they've said, from being able to further abuse them. So unless you're planning to deny that your kid is gay or deny that they're trans, if they actually end up telling you, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about when it comes to these laws because they're not designed for you. They're designed to get kids out of abusive relationships and out of abusive situations. And until you have an actual solution about that, stop fucking crying about this. And the thing is, you will never have a solution about it because you believe that it's the parent's right to tell the child that, hey, you're not gay. Gay people don't exist. Trans people don't exist. 
let me break some hard news out to the parents out there who are concerned about this kind of stuff. You do not get to choose your child's sexuality. You do not get to choose your child's gender identity. They choose that for themselves. Like I said, you are the guide on their journey. You are not driving the ship. And I know I'm getting a little bit full of piss and vinegar here. And let me just calm down and, and try and be somewhat fair here. And to be fair here, there is a, there's definitely sort of a natural instinct as a parent to be like, whoa, you know, why is someone doing something with my kid and not telling me about it? You know, the, still, right? I'm the guide, right? Not this other person. This other person shouldn't be guiding them along. It should be my job. And to them, I say, nobody is trying to stop you from guiding your kids. We're just trying to stop people from abusing them. And I do think it's definitely fair to say that telling your child that there's something they're not is abuse. And you might say something like, well, you know, the kid's too young to figure out their gender identity. And that is definitely another sort of button push they will try and deploy against parents because you know that your kid is still learning the world. They're still exploring the world. They still got lots of things to figure out. But when it comes to sort of core identity issues and core being issues, I tend to believe that kids can figure that stuff out fairly quickly. And the other sort of solution, which sometimes is deployed by conservatives is, well, just wait till you're 18. And not only is that a very lackluster argument in the sense that, okay, so you just want this person to be abused until they're 18. Hopefully that doesn't have any long lasting impacts on their psyche. But the main fact of the matter is, is that waiting until you're 18 to transition can sometimes be too long and it can sometimes make the transition more difficult and less incongruent with their gender identity. When you hear conservatives talk about this issue, you get this impression that they think like as soon as little Johnny comes to mommy and says, oh, mommy, I, I think I might be a girl, that all of a sudden sort of the state-sponsored goon force busts in the door and says, put him on the table, quick, put his jimmies in the paper cutter. Of course, this is not even remotely realistic when it comes to gender transition. It's a very long process that, of course, sometimes doesn't start until at least 16, sometimes even older. And if you believe Matt Walsh, well, uh, 16 is an adult, so they're capable of making their own decisions. The process of transitioning takes a considerable amount of time, a lot more time than any of these people seem to think it does. And the full hormonal treatments and gender reassignment surgery isn't going to happen right away either. There's going to be a lot of consultations. There's going to be updates with the child. There's going to be parents involved as well as medical professionals. The way these clowns talk about gender reassignment surgery, it gives the impression like it's some sort of like Saw-esque process, like they're trapped in this dingy room and there's like this slow machine walking towards them that's going to mutilate them or whatever. Pure delusion. Pure delusion. It's truly mind-boggling to me when so many people take this idea seriously, when all you need to debunk it is a very simple and easy Google search. So speaking of debunking, let us debunk some of these ideas around transgendered people. The one I really want to talk about is this kind of idea that a child has no idea what their gender identity is until they become an adult. The fact of the matter is that we are learning that that is becoming more and more untrue, and we actually have science and data to back this up. And this is one of the conservative talking points I love, and this will kind of bend into another generic conservative argument that they make, but we'll save that one for another episode. But one of the things they love is they talk about now conservatives like to say that they're the ones that are following science and all the, all the lefties have abandoned science. Okay. Well, let's look at some of the science here. Let's look at an actual modern study here. This is from March of 2022. So incredibly, incredibly recent. And this is another game that conservatives will play. A lot of times when they talk about studies that they're referencing, it's very old science. They're talking about studies usually from the 20th century. In fact, there's one very big one that they still use, even though it's been very thoroughly debunked and destroyed, which is they'll throw around this figure of 98% of transgendered people don't actually end up transitioning. You know, they end up kind of growing out of it or whatever phrase they use. So you know what? It's actually not really a thing. Well, 
one, that studies from the 1980s, way before we were really actually studying transgendered people in a meaningful way. And the kicker is that that study is actually people who were cross-dressing, not people who were transgendered, which are two very, very different things. All right, so let's break down this study. And before I continue, I do just want to make one request to the conservatives out there. If you want to talk about transgendered people and transgendered issues, at least use science from the 21st century, please. So what exactly is this study? Well, it states that brain sex and transgender women is shifted towards gender identity. So what they did is that they took 24 cisgendered men and 24 cisgendered women and scanned their brains and then compared those brains brain scans to transgendered women. So basically women who were born as men, but then transitioned later in life. So now that we've got the details here, let's see what they actually found. Let's scroll down to the discussion because that is where all the cool stuff is. So in the discussion, whoops, let's just shift this up a bit. They state the observed shift away from a male typical brain anatomy towards a female typical one and people who identify as transgender women suggests possible underlying neuroatomical correlate for female gender identity. That is, all transgendered women in this study were confirmed to be genetic males who had not undergone any gender-affirming hormone therapy. Thus, these were transgender women who have been subject to the influence of androgens and grown up, at least until a certain age, in an environment that presumably treated them as males. The combination of genes, androgens, and to some degree male upbringing should ordinarily be expected to result in a male typical brain, making a female typical brain anatomy extremely unlikely. Yet the brain anatomy in the current sample of transgendered women is shifted towards their gender identity. That's the big part. An observation that is at least partially in agreement with previous reports as discussed in the following. Okay, then they go back and they discuss some of the previous studies in this field. So what they are saying here is that when they scanned the brains of these transgendered women, they looked more like the brains of cisgendered women than men. And as it very clearly states, these are transgendered women who have not undergone any transition, any hormone therapy, and like they said, probably have been treated as males their entire life by the rest of society. So despite all of that, their brains still end up looking way closer to women's than they do men's. And you want to talk about science, you want to talk about unarguable data. This to me how can you argue that transgendered people don't exist when their brains literally look like the brains of the gender they identify with? And as we are learning more and more about the brains of transgendered people, we are beginning to, to discover more signifiers which show that someone will identify as the opposite sex at an earlier age, meaning that we can start scanning the brains of younger children and seeing if they align with their biological sex or the opposite one. So not only is this incredible evidence that A, transgender people exist, but B, this is not something that just comes out of nowhere, right? This is not something that is influenced by society. This is something that is influenced by their own internal cognitive brain function. Meaning that this whole idea that it's some kind of woke mob, putting these ideas in your head to make you think that you're a girl when you're really a boy is nonsense. It's such nonsense. And not only that, it's anti-scientific. And if you're still not convinced, then just try to put yourself in the shoes of a transgender person. Try to, as clearly as you understand that your biological sex is congruent with your identified gender, that imagine as clearly as you knew that, you knew it was the opposite, that you knew that your gender and sex did not align, that you were in fact a man trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. And then on top of that, imagine that everyone around you was telling you, no, you're wrong. What you're experiencing isn't real. You're just confused. That to me sounds like horrible gaslighting on a societal scale 
and honestly, hell on earth. And it's no wonder that transgender people that don't get the gender affirming care that they need and want end up with so many mental issues and in a lot of circumstances, unfortunately committing suicide. One of the things I'd love to do to Matt, if I could ever swing this or get enough money to somehow put this together is to basically go to his staff and pay them to like gender him for a month that every time he'd come into work, they'd refer to him as Misty Walsh instead of Matt. They'd call him Mrs. Walsh. They'd use she, her pronouns. And every time he'd be like, what's going on here, guys? I'm, I'm a man. What's going on? His staff would be like, no, Misty, you're a woman. You're just confused. Why aren't you listening to us? Can't you see that you're actually a woman? I guarantee you by the end of that month, he would have lost his freaking mind. And before I move on to the last part of the episode, which will probably be much shorter because I've spent too long talking about this as usual, I do want to say that let's talk about their supposed checkmate. You know, let me let me answer the, the infamous question of what is a woman? And it was hilarious that, of course, Joe Rogan has become big on this one is like, oh, this is the checkmate, checkmate, I'm just asking what a woman and their brains will explode type of thing. And I want to thank Aaron Brown for making this point. And it was, I can't believe I didn't see this before, how he was talking about in that episode, how, of course, he, his friend's wife's, yeah, his friend's wife is a teacher who knows somebody who had a litter box in the school. It's always three or four degrees of separation, right? It's never a direct experience. It's always like, you know, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows another guy type of scenario. So it's part of the reason why I don't take that kind of stuff very seriously, because quite honestly, I don't believe that it's actually happening. And bringing it back to that point when I talked about at the beginning, how if you don't take conservative arguments very seriously, they will continue to escalate the scenario until they can either force you to take it seriously or in their own heads justify that you're some kind of immoral, inhuman monster. So let's talk about transgender people, because it's the topic we've been discussing for the last little while. So let's just continue with that. So let's say that you are a person who believes that transgender people don't exist, like Matt Walsh, and you're arguing or talking to another person who believes transgender people don't exist. Well, that's great because you guys are on the same page. You don't have to deploy any arguments to kind of get them to come over to your side or take what you're saying seriously because they already will. However, if you're a guy like me who's pro-trans rights and believes that people should have every right to transition, what they will do is then they'll deploy the argument, well, what about minors and what about young kids transitioning? What do you think about that? And then again, if you're like me where you think that by and large young people can figure that stuff out for themselves and by and large are able to articulate it in a meaningful capacity, then of course they will move on to maybe the next point they have, which is, well, what about these detransitioners? What about these people who transitioned from one gender or another and then regretted it? What about them? To which you might say something like, well, yes, that's very unfortunate. There is no cosmetic or elective surgery out there, which has a 100% satisfaction rate. And the fact of the matter is that transgender surgeries and gender reassignment surgeries have a rate which is on par or lower than other elective surgeries. And then from there, they'll probably start to deploy like some really awful sort of detransitioning story or someone who was supposedly forced into being transgender. You know the word that they like to use, but YouTube doesn't like anyone to use it apparently. So I will let your imagination run wild on it. I mean, I could swear no problem, but that word might be an issue. And then to something like that, I would say, well, that's really horrible and awful for the individual. But the fact of the matter is that the people who transition from one gender to another and who identify as transgendered are doing it because this is what is best for them and best for their mental health. And you can't use one bad story to undermine the existence of an entire group of people. And this is the point where they would probably switch, where they would say something like, so you're saying what happened to this person isn't bad? Oh, you're terrible. You're awful. Oh, I, you were unsalvageable. I know I couldn't talk to you. And then from there, of course, they justify that they won the argument in their own head and they go, good job, you owned another lib. It's moral blackmail. It's a stupid game. And you know what they say? 
play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And speaking of stupid games, let me go back to the original point that I was going to before I started this whole tangent, which is answering the question of what is a woman? And to me, this is a very stupid game. So generally speaking, I don't like to play it because it's never something asked in good faith or something to actually start a legitimate and meaningful political dialogue. It's a gotcha question they deploy to either try and make you look stupid or to somehow undermine the existence of trans people to begin with. So my main advice on this would be to not play their stupid game. However, if you insist on playing, I believe there are two ways to play it to be successful and ways that I've been successful in the past. The first is you never want to actually be the first one to answer the question because whoever answers the question first gets to dictate the battlefield of the definition. So one way I might respond to this is something like, oh man, oh, I don't know, my socialist brain is too collectivized. I just, I just can't get my mind around it. Why don't you tell me? And usually they might say something like an adult human female or a female that has the capacity to give birth. And all of these have ways that you yourself can then kind of dive in there and start to pick apart their definitions just in the same way that they were hoping to do to you. For example, you can ask them to define what a female is. They might say a female, like I mentioned before, someone who can give birth, but of course there are plenty of women who can't give birth. So that's one way you could play the game. You can use it and kind of flip it on their head and then start to pick apart their definitions. Although personally, the best way I think to respond to this question is just to remind them of the fact that trans women are women and that the definition of women completely accounts for that fact. So let's look at the dictionary definition of women and see what it says. All right, woman, an adult female person. Huh, okay, okay. Well, let's look at the definition of trans women. An adult who is assigned male at birth, but whose gender identity is female. Hmm, female, an adult female person. So trans women are women after all. Wow. Who would have guessed? I mean, the fact that they think that somehow this is an own in and of itself just shows how shallow and ignorant they really are. So with that, we're going to come to the last part of the show, which is going to be kind of a little wrap up and summary of some of the things we've talked about before. So we've already talked about three of the generic conservative arguments. Number one being the West, which is what I typed in for this. I typed an angry guy yelling the West. What <laughs> came up for the AI prompt. So that's what goes in the background. So that's number one. Number two is the one you've heard probably the most, wokeness bad. And then number three is won't somebody please think of the children. And one of the things they like to do is they kind of like to fuse their arguments together to try and give it a different flavor. But realistically, it's made up of the same building blocks. So a big one that they will combine two arguments for is the one on abortion. So the anti-choice argument really stems from, at first, obviously, won't somebody please think of the children? This is the main one they deploy when talking about abortion. It probably makes up 75% of the argument. This is what they're doing when they bring the pictures of the dead babies or whatever, or talk about, oh, we're, you're mutilating and murdering babies, that kind of stuff. That is all, won't somebody please think of the children? And of course, we know that they don't really give a crap about children. They especially don't give a crap about your children. They might give a little bit of a crap about their own children, but only insofar as that they will advance their own politics. The overwhelming reasons why people aren't starting families right now are in the realm of economics, not cultural. Starting a family is extremely expensive in most parts of the world and ends up being a luxury that only the middle class can afford and it's becoming to be a point where not even they can afford it. So if you want people to actually have more kids, maybe you should stop with the conservative talking points because that's only going to depress the birth rate. One of the conservative talking points you might've heard is that apparently left-wing people hate families and hate children. That is totally not the case in any way, shape or form. We just support people who maybe have decided that having a family isn't for them. But we also support people who do have families because we care about their economic stability and well-being. The issue with conservatives is that they care about neither. 
Things like neoconservative economic policy, trickle-down economics have been an unmitigated disaster for the traditional family. They have not only made it impossible to really enjoy a happy work-life family balance, but for many people, they've taken the idea of having kids completely off the table because it's simply too expensive to even consider it. How about we, for example, have a guaranteed basic income? Maybe then you could have more people staying at home and taking care of their kids because they could actually afford to because they wouldn't need two jobs to get by so they can actually spend time doing the things they want to do and with the people that they want to be with, i.e. their family. But the other argument they will deploy might surprise you. The other argument that makes up the anti-abortion tirade is, of course, the West. This is because the religious component of the abortion argument and almost all religious conservative arguments I file under the West. And the reason this is, is because if you're talking with a conservative, they won't deploy religious arguments against you if they know you're a left-leaning person, and especially if they know you're a non-religious person like yours truly. So instead, what they do is kind of reframe the argument to say, well, yes, you may not believe in God, but religion is still an important part of our society because of the Judeo-Christian values, which then launches into this sort of discourse about how Christianity is important in our past and has defined our culture and our work ethic and so on and so forth. So conservatives have really stopped using these kind of religious arguments outside of religious circles. They'll only deploy them within religious circles now. And then they take sort of the arguments that they would use to support with a religious basis and frame that into a Judeo-Christian values basis which is essentially what they do with abortion. That is another way that they will come around and try and argue against it. Essentially, it is a founding part of Christianity. Therefore, it's a founding part of your culture. Therefore, the West. And my big point with this whole the West argument is A, that it somehow argues that the West is this kind of like intransmutable identity that has existed in the same way ever since its inception which we obviously can say is not the case. Whatever the West is has changed dramatically over the years. And then it comes with sort of another much more, I don't like the word problematic, but I'll use it for, for here. I think it's kind of cringe, but <laughs> it, something that's far more problematic is the idea that somehow Western values are superior to other ones, right? This is the subtext within the West argument. Here's my next picture with the same prompt. In any case, I do hope to kind of do a episode in the future that's basically the East, where I kind of go over some of these countervailing narratives to Western civilization, right? Where I go over some of the philosophies and religions of the so-called East and show how they're every bit as coherent and viable as so-called Western civilization, and in some cases, actually superior. Don't get me wrong, of course the West has contributed a great deal to human civilization, but I hate this kind of attitude that somehow the East is completely irredeemable or completely undeserving of any consideration and they're kind of this inferior backwater. This is definitely a Western-centric view and one that I hope that I can counter as time goes on. But yeah, that being said, Western civilization still has some very serious problems. And of course, there will always be problems. And with that, I think I'm going to wrap up the show. I'm running out of time to record, and already this show is go looks like it's going to be longer than the last one. I think over time, these shows will decrease in length. The main issue right now is that because I haven't really talked about a lot of these issues, I just have a lot to say. So it's like I'm getting a lot off my chest right now and kind of regurgitating it out into the internet. So for the meantime, these episodes may be somewhat long and somewhat rambling. And again, I didn't have time to get into the more user interaction part of the show. I'm hoping that we'll get to it next time. 
However, I will have a lot to say next time because bearing some sort of great and very pertinent current event or news cycle, I will be talking about the manosphere and the so-called red pill in the next episode and giving my thoughts and opinions on that. So if you guys are interested in that kind of discourse, I hope you'll tune in next week. And until then, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And this has been to Comrade. Signing off for now. Till next time, you guys take care.